They need to do a bit of an exorcism. It smells like B.O. Hardcore. <laughs> I'm not sure what the f*** this is. I'm about to find out. This is Tall Can Audio. Away we go on episode 1009 of the Tall Can Audio podcast. Coming to you live from our... I'm well, not live. Coming to you podcasted from our studio in beautiful Bytown, Canada. My name's Matt. Rob over there. What are you saying today, man? Podcasted. Yep. Sounds like you've had to brace it in some way. Bandaged, casted, perhaps. Just answer the question. I'm fucking fantastic, <laughs> Matt. It's September, but it feels like July. It is fucking hot, yeah. And I've got out of the pool to be here with you today. Well, we appreciate that. And now, you know, unlike previous times this year where we've been in here where there's been no heat mm-hmm. or no air conditioning. Yep. It's quite comfortable. It is quite comfortable. Yeah. So makes me almost want to put my pants back on. If you don't mind. Yeah. We'll just throw that chair out. When there we, let's just... <laughs> <laughs> Working in a great mohawk. Shrides is going to be here on the Thursday morning edition of the podcast. I'll, uh, I'll bring in a stool or something. There's one her. next to us here. There's two <laughs> chairs over here. We're totally, totally good. A couple of empty chairs based on, uh, you haven't been in here since episode 1000. No, and I And you were out. very un- unhappy with the temperature in the room that day. <laughs> well, there was way too many people in here to be, yeah, I was sweating profusely. And a lot of people trying to lay claim to that Captain Blowhard title. <laughs> Everybody had something to say, man, so. Well, there was a lot of talking. Yeah. And not a lot being said. Okay, yeah. No, no. Welcome I, to the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, it was interesting with four people. Yeah. No, it's a slightly different dynamic. And I would advise the good listener, if you've been under a rock or under the water or something for the summer, go back and check it out wherever you're hearing this or uh, just hit up tallcanaudio.com. Episode 1000. Uh, it's a while back, but uh, it's well worth your time. Episode 1008. If you missed, we had Andrew Berkshire of the uh, SDPN on to talk all things Habs. What's going on with Carey Price? Is Yuri Slefkovsky going to make the team... What's reasonable expectations for Cole Caulfield this year? Uh, he was on to talk about that. And uh, episode 1007 was Graham Nichols, Timmy Stutzla, locked up long-term. I'm sure Rob has an opinion or two on that we can get to here in a little bit. But before we do, Rob has indicated he is done waiting for me to ask him what he's drinking today. And he doesn't know what he's drinking today as I have, uh, well, I've provided one for him. He's brought one for me. Uh, you have the last pint from the... Uh, the box that, uh, that Josh brought in here after episode 1000 from the Refined Fool Brewing Company. It's an IPA called the Illiterate Librarian. Wow. IPA. That's fitting. It was very clear. I'm getting full on IPA from this. It's a grapefruit, uh, flavored about 5.7%, but, uh, yeah, I'm going through it and I'm trying to decide which ones I'm going to sip on. You take a look at that title and that's, we'll hold on to that. We'll wait for Rob right. to have the, uh, the illiterate librarian. It actually fits our pre, uh, pre-pod discussion. I was, I was giggling to myself as we were talking out there. Yeah. Yeah. So it actually is, it tastes a little boozier than 5.7. Okay. To me, usually when you get that little bit of finish to it, that says, I don't know, got a little something on the end, but it's very IPA off the hop. A little juicy. I like that. Yeah. It's, and it's not that bitter of a finish. Okay. So to me, um, tasty. Tasty off the first couple pulls or two. See, that was a way better crack than mine. Yeah. And I, I just cut my nails, man. Like, 
having a hard time getting under the tab, and I just I had to like ah, flip it around. Anyways, I'm not proud, but this one has come from your beer fridge, made its way into town from out in the boons of Canada. Yeah, have you had a pull on it yet? Nope. Okay, so what you are drinking there is as I've been making my way from one armpit mm. of the province to another, Peterborough, Guelph. Sort of hitting a bunch of different breweries as I uh, as I go. That comes from a place called Fixed Gear Brewing out of Guelph. Okay, not familiar. Nope, me either. <clears throat> so I went in there for a flight. They brought me out. Now it was about a honestly, they were almost like eight ounce glasses in this flight of eight. Nice, and some of them not so nice. And I'm getting oh. to a spot where I'd been to a brewery the day before, which. I'll likely take down on a future pod, but fixed gear. So all bicycle themed. Oh, okay. Okay. Now that one, now that I've said that, that's called the Alley Cat. So if there's a bike reference in there, I'm missing it. (laughs) But that is the Alley Cat Milkshake IPA. I'm getting almost nothing milkshakey from it. Yeah. Anything sweet from it. Yeah. So that's, that's the lactose. Sugar, right? A little bit of, uh, of that. Very, very much getting the IPA flavor, which is, uh, is fine. But yeah, I, in a million years, you wouldn't have got me to guess milkshake. Yeah. And really all that is, I think when you pour it into a glass, it has a bit of that sort of, it's lighter in terms of the haziness, yeah. right? And, and the sugary, it's a little sweeter, which is, I think where they're going for the milkshake portion of yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Now I say that having never had that beer. Uh, I brought a couple back, gave one to LSG for him to, uh, to try. And then, um, yeah, I, I got in here today and you're like, oh, I got one for you. And I'm like, okay, well then I got one for you. That was one of the things they didn't have on tap. They Uh-oh. only had it in the can. So I was sipping on a bunch of things going, uh, uh. the one thing I really wanted to try was that one, but I gave it to you instead, Matt, because it felt right. <laughs> I appreciate you, man. <laughs> okay. Now you've made me feel guilty about it. <laughs> no, I, you've given me a beer and I've given you a beer and it's it, true, but I put, I placed way less sentimental value on the one. I was just making fun of the illiterate librarian. You're oh, like, well, you know this what? is one I was really looking forward to, but I'll give it to you, I guess. And, and you know what? Mm-hmm. Anybody who's listened to a minute of this podcast understands that I have the bigger heart. Okay. I'm giving, I'm kind and thoughtful. Put others first. Try it sometime, Matt. (laughs) Coming up this week, it's good to have you back. Uh, Tuesday morning, Dave Bedini from the Rio Statics, the West End Phoenix. Uh, He is involved in this uh, four-part documentary series called Summit 72. It's uh, 50 years since the 1972 Canada uh, Russia series. Rob was just finishing up high school at the time that, uh, that went down. <laughs> My fifth year of grade 12. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, Dave's big into that. And, uh, like I said, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. He also has a book out on the series called, uh, Wild Stab for it. This is game eight from Russia. Uh, the link to that, if you want to check it out and Dave's a great writer, he's got a bunch of cool stuff out on hockey that, uh, well worth your time if you're interested, but the, uh, the link to this one will be in the show notes at talkinaudio.com or wherever you're hearing us. And this is going to be really fun, man, because I don't think I've ever heard anyone give this particular perspective before. On Wednesday morning, Slava Malamud is going to be on the podcast to give us the Russian perspective wow. on 
1972 Canada-Russia Summit, Summit Series. How it will be remembered over there? Will it be remembered over there? Will they even bother? Um, what do they think of this, uh, I don't know, Team Canada that maybe was a little more rough and tumble than they were expecting when they arrived? I don't think I've ever heard. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm just saying I don't think I've ever heard anyone right. give the uh, Russian perspective on uh, this eight-game series. So I uh, reached out to Slava, who's a hockey commentator on uh, on Twitter. He's had uh, lots to say over the years and um, always strong opinions. He, yeah. He'll tell you exactly what he thinks. So uh, he's going to be on the show on Wednesday morning. Well, and I think you know, I'm, I, I've heard a little, and the Russians also look at it as a sort of a, the pinnacle of, of hockey at that time, right? They they look at it, and I think I think maybe we'll see what Slava has to say, but I think they in some way feel like they won it. I, was, I hinted at that in the last episode when I teed this up then, that there's an argument to be made from their side, or at least that they're making, that actually they won. Yeah. And uh, so that'll be interesting. We'll ask Cl- uh, Slava about that. And Thursday morning, your pal Shrides will be, uh, will be back on the, the podcast as well. She uh, just back from her honeymoon in Europe, uh, toured the Guinness facilities. Been there. Yeah. And uh, there were many a picture posted on Instagram of the, uh, the goings on around, uh, around Ireland and whatever. I thought that Josh had actually pulled off the ultimate, uh, I don't know what you'd want to call it, power play or, or whatever, while they were over there. I'm sure you're very much aware of this, Rob. Uh, WWE was putting on a huge stadium pay-per-view called Clash at the Castle. It was in Wales. So while they were touring the UK, I thought somehow Josh had lured Michaela over to the UK under the guise of a honeymoon, and then uh, they would arrive at the stadium. But alas, uh, she put her foot down, was not having that as part of her honeymoon, I guess. So, Uh, But yeah, lots of touring around, lots of beers that she tried, lots of uh, time through the, the Guinness... Uh, facility. She's going to be back on uh, on Thursday morning. It is the epicenter. The UK is the epicenter of good beer. I love it. I haven't had a good Boddington's in a while. A Tetley's? Yeah. Uh, but a Boddington's, the cream of Manchester. Just haven't been out, right? Like there, It's one thing to have out of the can, but you got to drink that one properly. Like you got to have a pint of, of Boddington's. Yeah. I think. And, and, and it's really, as we talk all the time, everything comes down to it's it's the big power move to local craft, right? Everybody wants to have, Hey, what do you have that's local? What do you have that's blah? And so, yeah, well, just blah, whatever you're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I used to love, you know, if you could seek out a, a good bidder or, or, you know, any of those things we're talking about a, um, a Kilkenny's used to love a Kilkenny too. So it's, yeah, all that Boddington's, Tetley's, John Smith's, Flowers, Caffrey's. Caffrey's a nice beer too. Yeah, honestly, Fuller's just certainly get a little. I want to just have a beer, man. <laughs> yeah. You feel like a beer? Yeah, tenants. You know, yeah. just all the. Oh, you uh, know how I feel about the. Tenants. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do, man. So, really good beers and Ireland. I don't know how long they spent in Ireland, but it wasn't enough. I'm certain that's true. Well, and uh, I'm sure Michaela will tell you that you could spend for just in Dublin right. alone. It's just, man. I I swear to you, I drank ten pints of Guinness. Every day I was there for 10 days, hundred pints, easy. It's all about the iron while you're in, uh, For sure, uh, man. Ireland. Never better. For sure. Fortified. Yeah. Uh, well, this is the first time you've been in since episode 1000. Even before that, it was a little spotty. Why don't you tell us how I spent my summer vacation? Rob Christie edition. Man, you know what? It's, uh, it's been a great summer. I, I, I won't lie to you. I took every Monday and Tuesday off. So I really had three days of work 
each week all summer. So after Labor Day Monday, did you have a hard time? Like, oh shit, I actually have to go. I had to change the alarm on my phone, right? Because it's, I had to put the Tuesday back on and then Monday morning here, I will have to have Monday Mm. back on for the first time since June. five day week since June. Man, oh man. And now it's, I love my job. Yeah. It's not a real, which is really what it means is thankfully it'll be the first five day back in the gym week. Mm. Getting a little soft in the ass. Just three days just isn't enough if I'm going to pint and eat like a Viking. Right. Right? Like every day I'm a, is a feast. So, um, yeah, it's been great. I, I jumbo hot dogs. Yeah, exactly. And so did a little bit of traveling just, just within the province. A little Doug Ford staycation, right? Yeah. Pulled down a little bit of that. Um Sampled some, a pile of beers. I hit your 762 through, went through Madoc, stopped in there. Nice. They need to do a bit of an exorcism. Smells like BO hardcore (laughs) in the, um, but hey, I didn't, uh, I didn't entirely mind the beer. Some of it was, was, was whatever. I was looking for the IPA, but they were out of it. But, um, on your and Michaela's recommendation, um, a couple of good things. I didn't mind a little Irish. Um, yeah, but, um. Got to see my buddy uh, in Peterborough, long time since I'd seen him, thriving, thriving out there. So nice, that was a highlight. I got to share a couple of pints in his new expanding uh, residential empire. <laughs> He's hard at work there. Um, <laughs> but did some reading, did a lot of um, just hanging by the pool. Really just a nice, hey, marched in, uh, marched in Pride. First time I, I wanted to do it for a while. So Ottawa Pride. Yep. Um, that was just two, three weeks ago? Yeah, two Sundays, uh, three yeah. Sundays ago, whatever it is. Um, it was it was awesome. It was a festive environment. Man, at some points there were five, six deep on the sidewalks. So I was walking with the, with the bookmobile for the library. Right. So... Um, but yeah, I've wanted to do it for a while. I, I do it for my for my younger brother, but I really do it for for everybody. I, I think about it, and not to be too um, political, but yeah, in, in a time when when we're seeing hard fought rights being clawed back, whether it be women's right to choose, whether it be you know LGBTQ rights in the states as well, right? You see problems with you know. Uh, drag queen story times at libraries being boycotted and shut down and you know what's next right is it yeah. um is it rights of the elderly is it uh is it well, we're disab- already seeing there's their rights infringed up here the right. elderly Disel- disabled rights you know yeah. and how long before we claw back more sort of um yeah you got to take a stand here before that shit starts to really dig yeah. in right and, and, and so it's such a small thing for for me to walk in in pride but yeah, it was important. It was important. And and it's funny. Are, are you familiar with the song? It's Manic Street Preachers. If you tolerate this, your children will be next. No. It's a great song. And, and, and it really, um, it, it, to me, the, the title in itself, you know, resonates on a bunch of levels, right? At what point do you, do you, do you make a stand? Right. Right. And so I've just sort of started to look more and more into the lyrics. And it's really, I, I think it's based on a lot of... Spanish Civil War stuff. So it's mm. it's really, you know, if, if if I can't shoot rabbits, I can't shoot fascists. <laughs> um, and, and so it's interesting. And it led me to, I read a lot this summer too. I, I, I'm, uh, I just finished Homage to Catalonia 
which is George Orwell's Memoirs of Fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Wow. Yeah, super interesting. Nonfiction, but um, yeah, based on his his actual time spent in northern Spain fighting, well, fighting fascism. Um, I've also come close to finishing Two Solitudes by Hugh McLennan. Courage. See, and this is it, right? I thought, I'm going to have to figure why there needs to be courage for Hugh McLennan, right? <laughs> I, I need to figure this out, right? And his biggest book is Two Solitudes, right? Well, for anyone who that reference is lost upon, what the fuck are you still doing listening to this podcast? Yeah. Uh, the tragically hip song Courage in brackets for Hugh McLennan. Right. And so it turns out actually that it's got nothing to do with Two Solitudes, mm-hmm. which, um, but it's about a book that Hugh McLennan wrote called The Watch That Ends the Night. And, and really it's about, he, his wife passed away and um, he, he, he felt suicidal. He was really questioning, you know, where life was at post-World War II, what was, you know, what was a man really to look forward to or hope for in life and what did he really stand for? And so anyways, courage, right? It's the idea to, uh, to continue on when, when life is tough. And so, um, yeah, that's really what I've spent my summer doing. A lot of reading, a lot of pinting, a lot of different <laughs> stuff, um, swimming, just checking out family. I've seen a pile of family between my, my 50th birthday and the beginning of the summer and at the end, right? It's been nice to, uh, to spend some time with, with family and, and to get together with some people I haven't seen in, in years. So, um, yeah, really good. I feel rejuvenated in a lot of ways. Nice, man. That's a long winded answer. Yeah. That's what we were looking for. We wanted to know what Rob's been doing. He hasn't been here. So we had to, uh, we had to catch up a little bit, man. Yeah. Just sort of trying to not stay, uh, you know, quite so angry. <laughs> How's that working? Out? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a hit and miss. It's hit and miss. But the older I get. Right, flip on the news every night, and there it is again. Something to be angry about. Man, there's a pile of shit. But there's a pile of shit. But but um, yeah, really, just and and loving the Jays. Mm -hmm. Although I feel like there's just heartbreak built right into that team. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, have you noticed? And we're moving on since you're not asking me what I did with my summer. Have you noticed that (laughs) Jordan Romano sits at 32 saves? And as we sit here now, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is at 27 home runs. Has that remained on your radar at all? Uh, I, I just saw the other day with the uh, with Romano's 29th and then into his 30th save, and I can't remember who I said would have more. I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I assumed you would. Otherwise, I wouldn't have brought it up. Right, so did I say Vladdy would have more homers? Yes. Okay. And I, I wasn't by any means saying that I, I assumed Vladdy would have more homers than he has now. I expected both to be in the 40 range. Yeah. And I just raised it as a question. I did not take a hard stand. Yeah. Yeah. On, I, I uh, do remember the question though. Yeah. I absolutely do. And, and I, but I couldn't remember which one I came down. But, but I wasn't even, and I don't know if I have the patience throughout the weekend, I'll go find it. You barely let me finish the question before you went, Vladdy. As we sit here right now, Vladdy Guerrero has five home runs. Jordan Romano has five saves. Whose total will be higher in those statistics at the end of the year? Guerrero. Okay. And uh, and I, I thought that was a reasonable answer, to be honest with you, because it just... If you expected him to do linear things, which development isn't always, right? After the For MVP sure. season he put up last year... 
yeah, you assume that guy's going to hit somewhere around 40 dingers at least. I thought he was going to hit close to 50 this year. He has gone back to hitting almost everything on the ground. Wow. And Leads the AL, <laughs> at least the AL, in double plays hit into. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, Romano has been lights out this year and at 32, uh, 32 saves, he may yet get to 40 and who knows with a big month, um, Vladdy could get to 40 as well. But uh, Romano, as we sit here in September, five up in that little uh, yeah, early no. season thing we kicked around it's and it's funny because uh, uh, Vladdy I think is still hitting somewhere 285 yeah. 27 homers he's gonna hit he's gonna have 100 RBIs he's got a pile of worm burners that's all well and and you go can you not get the ball in the air all right and so if you look at it you know and they've played in a couple of parks either in Pittsburgh recently or Camden the newly the new Camden Man, where you got like 500 feet to the... <laughs> they just took, for some reason, the left foot or left field wall and just dragged it back 100 yards or 100 feet. And, and it looks very different. awkward, right? Yeah. You used to have that beautiful look with the brick and then you're like... Yep. That looks that looks odd. Bo's on fire. Yeah. And just ask Bo. Bo knows. Man, it was interesting. Did you see him... <laughs> I don't know. After his three homer game, probably so. Whenever that was against Pittsburgh, I don't know when that was last weekend. Yep. And they were and and so it's interesting. And we've talked about it through through the year, right? You know, if, if he's going to continue to swing at that first pitch, no matter where it is, and that aggressiveness that didn't seem to be paying off, and and as he started to get dropped down into the six hole, was even a game in the seven hole, I yep, think. And that's right. After Schneider came on and said, yeah, Bo's, Bo's a cleanup guy. Bo's an RBI guy. Bo's going to drive it. And then, yeah, his average dipped into the 250s. And he, it was interesting for me that Bo's reaction to the question of what's changed or, and his thing was, I know me. I know me. I know what I do best. And he must have said, I, I know, <laughs> five times in the interview, right? And so... I wonder if he's feeling a little, there's a little chip on his shoulder, like somebody. Oh, don't you get the feeling with that guy there always is? Like he, he reminds me like, I don't even know, like uh, a little bit after the contract, like Marner, like sort of very talented, like, you know, but, but all the, the commentators, all the people who cover the team talk about how hard he is on himself. But anytime you hear him talk, there's a little bit of that, I don't know, like ego or like, like you said, very much a chip on your shoulder. I'm going to, I'm above these questions. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll be fine. I'm going to do this. Well, don't hit 250. Yeah. Well, to be fair to him, he's had a, he had a terrible start to the season. And since May, basically he's been fine. And in the last month or so, month and a half, he's been well above fine. He's like top four in most offensive categories, if you can believe it. But it's just his beginning uh, yep. for short stops in the AL. I mean, yep. um, but his start was so brutal that your numbers almost never recover from that, right? You have to spend the year digging out of it um, as opposed to like Espinal who starts out as an all-star yeah. and whose numbers are still respectable because they haven't fallen yet despite being pretty bad since the all-star game really. Yeah. Um, well, cause he was, he was flirting with 300 yeah. at the all-star break. He's and not now. I think he's batted like 229 since then. They have then or plummeted, yeah. plummeted since then. And so to the fact, to the point where, you know, they've, they've now you started to see Biggio in there. Yeah. He's doing all right. 
Well, and, and to me, left-handed bat, and he's just he's just steady Eddie guy, yep. right? You know yep. what I mean? He's gonna take some walks. He's gonna, and I bet you, if I was to ask Cavan, he could lay down a better bunt. Almost nobody seems to be able to on this team. Well, that's okay because you know what they'll do? The MLB will just change the rules to make sure that you don't have to bunt. Oh, well, I do want to ask you about the uh, the rule changes, but the other guy okay. who stands out in this kind of mix with Espinal and Biggio. Uh, is Whit Merrifield, who came over as literally an Ironman guy, an everyday player. Um, nobody has more hits in the American League since 2018. You know, and he's barely getting in the lineup. I think he started 12 of their last 30. He's been uh, all over. He's been in center. He's been yeah, in second. He's they, been a little at first the other day. I saw him. By all accounts, he's being a you know a good pro, right? He's not complaining. He's nothing like that. But man, it. it I still maintain at this point now, they had other things fall through and just at the last second, you, and reached out and pointed at Whitmerfield and... Damn, I got pork rinds. <laughs> like, it, it, clearly, they were trying to do bigger things, better, th- and that's why we had the, the break there where we didn't know if he was vaccinated or what that was going to look like. It was up to him doing... Yeah. It clearly came to the last minute. They called Kansas City, said, give us that guy, and, <laughs> and it just... There were warning signs even that day. And a lot of people, be, once he's yours, you start to go, well, the analytics and his advanced numbers say he's starting to trend back up and maybe he's going to be, he hasn't been very good either. And now he's useful. As you've said, you can start him just about anywhere and his wheels aren't terrible, but he hasn't been very good. Well, and, and he has said, and as a pro, right, like he's in his thirties, he's, yeah. he's been around and he said, yeah, I got to hit better. I got to hit better and, and, and force myself. I agree with. Yeah, and force myself into the lineup. Until then, like, really, to me, it's 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 Captain Biggio is is the guy. Seems to be, and it doesn't hurt to have that left-handed bat in there. Uh, they did approve, as you referenced there on Friday, new rules coming into next season. I think we knew most of them already that were coming. Uh, the first one is larger bases. Nobody seems to really have any objection to it. They go from 15 by 15 to 18 by 18. There's a couple people that are losing their minds about how easy it's going to be to steal a base now. Well, including with Merrifield. It's six inches. <laughs> yeah, but are, are they pulling I think it? we know six inches can make a big difference, but... Well, sometimes that's all you got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I'm not buying that. Are you? That suddenly base stealing is going to go through the roof based on the size of the bases? Well, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. Now, do, were they not talking about pulling it closer to... Well, second base, yeah, apparently for a hundred years has been in the wrong spot. Yeah. And so it now needs to be moved a little bit closer to the pitcher's mound and home plate, but it's positioning. It's still going to be 90 the feet. Si- to me, that's not the size of the base. That's the Yep. No, no. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And, and so I, I don't, and, and I, I think there's a bunch of things happening there, right? In terms of with the, with the pitch clock and the, and the cap on the number of times you can throw to first. Which is stupid. Well, because otherwise the pitch clock yeah, yeah, would just I, I, be... I get it. Well, right? I have to explain it to the good listener who maybe hasn't okay. yet heard the, uh, the full rule. Do it! <laughs> there is a pitch clock that's also coming in. You will have a limited amount of time to deliver the ball. Um, 15 seconds with nobody on base and 20 with someone on base. I believe that's correct. Yeah. So it's meant to speed it up. And anyone who's been covering minor league baseball where they put this in play a year or so ago has said it has absolutely made a difference. Games are finishing up in 235, 240. Yeah, like 25 minutes on average quicker. right? 
Um, but in order to – you have to then work through the loopholes, right? What will people do to get around it? And one of the first things would obviously be, I'll just keep throwing over to first base, yeah. right, to, to break up the clock until we're ready to go. There's nobody and, on base though. What are you throwing over there for? <laughs> well, I got to make sure my first baseman's exactly. awake. Are you awake? <laughs> so um, that is one way. And so they've limited the number of times that you can throw over there to two unless you're successful. Like you can throw over there again – if, and if you get him, you get him. But if you don't, I can't remember now if it's a ball or a balk or if he yeah, gets to take the base or whatever. But like there's a lot of things to work through here. But it's not just that after two throws that guy can steal at will and you never get to throw over there again. It also comes with pieces uh, for the batter, right, where he has to – can't step out. Yeah. Once you have dug in for the at-bat, you're in there and unless you get bowled over. <laughs> Wasps or bee stings. <laughs> or some kind. Sorry, man. Spitting at the umpire. Hang in there. Yeah. It, oh, that to me. Alomar shot there. That to me is the biggest one, right? Like the, the pitch clock is the one that is going to make the biggest change. The one that bugs me, I think the most, and maybe we've talked about this before, is the shift because the pitch clock I understand why people and players might object to it. That is a fundamental change to the way we play this game. That's never existed before. Whereas the shift to me is strategy, right? This is just the way I choose to position my guys. And if I choose to put all nine of them in left field. Yeah. That's on first to, base. Right. That's up to me, man. Like uh, th- that strategy, whereas pitch clock is actually changing the rules of the sport. And to me, those are totally different things. I don't. I, I kind of, the shift bugs me and I kind of get why Kevin Gosman, who said like very early in the season, I don't like the shift. Can we not shift? And they went, no, we're going to shift. And he seems to be the guy who's repeatedly been bitten on the ass yeah. by it all season. So weird. Um, but to me, that's just a, that's a way I choose to set up my guys and that's up to me. And like I said, I should be able to do whatever I want with them. Whereas the pitch clock, yeah, I get it. I, I want it. I'm in favor of it. And I think spring training is going to be a gong show while they work out all the different ways this is going to impact the game. I think there will be a massive period of adjustment, but they're smart players. They'll figure it out. And I like the idea that yeah, we can get this moving a little bit because baseball otherwise is, is going to be in trouble, right? It, it takes so long yeah. so often now. Well, is Dolly still pitching? Cause yeah, he's no, yeah. not as of next <laughs> season. Exactly. But see, then the thing is Gosman, I think his record is 11, nine. Yeah. There's, he seems to have way more success than a guy who's two games above 500. Like it just seems. Wow. Well, it's time to be done measuring pitchers based on their wins. No, I, I, I know, but I'm just, I'm saying, I'm looking at that going. He, it's he's so, pitched better than that. <laughs> he's like to me, he's way better than that. Yeah. Um the the thing with the shift is, and, and you listen to you listen enough to Buck Martinez or or like Buck loses his mind. Yeah. Right? Any of these older baseball players who go hit the other way. Yeah. Right? Just it, hit better. Yeah. In this day <laughs> in this day and age of of strikeout walks or homers, right? And and launch angles and, and all this stuff. You've lost, we talked about the bunting, right? Yeah. The fundamental art of Michael. bunting or, or, or hitting to the opposite field. And, and I know I've never tried to hit, you know, somebody who, who throws 99 <laughs> and then throws an 87, sl- you know, just. Slurve up there. Yeah. Like I, I understand, but you, I'm not a professional ball player. Right. You have to be able to bunt. 
you have to be able to steal. Like when they were when the Jays were playing the Orioles early last week, they had two guys who were either on the verge of thirty stolen bases, or or there already. Like Mateo and Mullins, I think. Yeah. Chris you used to have guys steal a hundred bases a year. No, you didn't. But fifty was fifty was the high water mark. You didn't have a hundred. Lou Brock, Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson didn't steal a hundred bases. Okay, I, I I wager he was very close on a couple of times. All right, but all I'm saying is you had guys who were elite base stealers. Yes, and so that to me that art has has gone by the wayside. And so to me, some of these rules and, and when they well, say like Whit Merrifield's now saying it's going to be too easy, like just everybody's going to steal. I'm not buying that either. Right. Like I, well, because his theory is because you can't throw over or because they've, he's saying because of the size of the bases. Wow. Oh, that's but, stupid. Yeah. Okay. But how many bang, bang plays are there? Well, let me ask you about that. Oh, it's okay. Beer's still up. Right All right. We're good. Um, I would have liked to have seen, I think. Something put in play where you overslide on the steal. Because second basemen now are taught when the, the, the guy slides on, leave your glove on yeah. him after he pops up because his momentum might carry him past the thing and we can on instant replay after he slides past the bag, we can replay and end up. And by the absolute letter of the law, Fine. But that's not what that rule was put in place for. It was, did he get there safely? Did he, what? And that kind of bugs me a little bit. And maybe it shouldn't. Like once we're doing this, like it, we. It shouldn't. To me, it does though. I, I just think, did he steal? Like to me, it's not the spirit of the rule. Right. So how do you feel about the guy who fakes a throwback to the pitcher, but still has the ball? I kind of like that. Okay. but it, So, but to me, it's, it's, you have to stay. In contact with the base yeah. until you feel comfortable not to. If you've overslid the base, hey man. But we're often talking about like he pops up and he just kind of rocks a little bit and his foot comes up or something and ah, I got gotcha. to. I don't know. To me, it's not the spirit of the. See, I love it when it happens. Of course. And me. then I feel like whoever was playing for my team and did that, yeah. you're a shitty you're ball in. player and I hate you now. <laughs> I, I just, I, that's how I feel. Okay. So to me, it's one of those things where you're like, ah, you suck. You just, I feel superior here on my couch. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's all I'm saying is stay in contact. And if you don't, you're out. Yeah, just, I'm good with it. Because we went a hundred years before replay where that would happen all the time and it was safe because he clearly fucking made it. And now that we have instant, I just don't think that's what it should be used for, right? Like. Yeah, I, I, I obviously get, we disagree. I just yeah, yeah, and it's fine that we disagree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things, and I think it happens so rarely. It doesn't seem like it though. Like it seems like now it's happening a couple times a week. All right, I'll, all right. I'll grant you a couple times. You a were week, too it's... busy sitting reading your George Orwell, and you're reading the wrong George Orwell at this point, man. Well, <laughs> see, I've already I've already read. I'd brush up on it. <laughs> Animal Farm. Yeah. I've already I've already taken down the the essential okay. Orwell. So this was and really, you know what? I've been to Spain three times. Yeah. I've read For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. And now I've read Homage to Catalonia by Orwell. I feel like I'm really the um, an honorary Spaniard. Okay. Yeah. I got a good feel for the whole thing. <laughs> Fix whatever ails Spain <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um but yeah, it's to me. It's like they have, they're dumbing baseball down. 
I think I get that. I think the exact opposite is about to happen with that pitch clock. You're going to have to know about 70 rules around that thing. How many has that guy stepped out? How many times has he thrown over? Yeah, yeah. it's going to become a... longer than the American Constitution. There's going to be amendments <laughs> to the rules. There's going to be all kinds of things because the, it, it is going to, they think they've figured it all out. But don't you, like, to me, uh, the comparison I would make is with the, the the base stealing thing where the guy pops up, comes off the base, the, the second baseman has kept his glove on him. You're out because you overslit. To me, that is the nitpicky bullshit that is the equivalent to the NHL team that gets into the zone, has cycled a couple times, um, you know, a minute and a half goes by, and then they score, and then we do the instant replay that says, ah, you were offside back there, and maybe there's been two or three changes of possession, maybe you've had a chance to get it out. It had nothing to do with the goal being scored, but you're able to reel the clock back and go, not that other little thing that happened way back there that doesn't impact the play at all. We're calling that. Well, That's blame, no goal. You can blame Matt Duchesne. Yeah. I blame that guy for most things. Yeah. For, for a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Why are my teeth yellow? Matt Duchesne. All right. <laughs> that guy's got little yellow sweaters on all his teeth. Does he? All right. he's, got, he's got the warmest teeth in Halliburton, that guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's a small thing. Yeah. That's all. But baseball is a game of percentages. It's small points matter and stay on the base. All right. Like really, it's it's one of those things where you go, yeah, guess what? Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, Matt. You stole my line. I know. I'm like, oh, I've heard it a time. I'm looking around <laughs> now. I'm like, what do I do? I got nothing here now. <laughs> All right. Forget it. That's uncomfortable. But the idea that we have to now, and, and, and I think you and I are in agreement on the shift, I don't like it when it takes away that screamer that you go, okay, well, we now have the shortstop on that side of the Short field. right center field. Yeah, or the, you, have the, yeah, you have the second baseman now playing you know, medium right. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure why it is that you can't, as a pro ball player, push the ball the opposite way. Like I understand that monster on the mound just threw it at 102 and yeah, <laughs> I but did I, what I could. But I think if you it. force if you force a ball player to to do it, they'll get it, they'll get it. And and so to me, it's it's the lack of fundamentals that you that you get. We talked about the bunting. There was never a way or stolen bases. These sorts of things. And it's just me in in a in a side note. Have you seen more of this first and third? And then they're just giving up the second, the second base. Like that seems to be, it makes perfect sense. Defensive indifference. Yeah. I'm not going to throw through because I'm afraid. That's all analytics. That's all percentages. It's not worth it to risk the throw down there. If this guy on third is really my biggest problem anyway. Right. Or. Yeah. But it just, that to me seems like such a, it seems to be just raising its, its ugly head all the time now. What did we make? I'm very curious about this. What was your uh, your takeaway from old Queen Elizabeth keeling over this week? Wow, wow! Ninety six years old. It's interesting, man. It's it's. Um, we have had uh, twenty three prime ministers. Twelve of them served under Queen Elizabeth. She was our monarch for forty five percent of the country's history. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. 
and it's it's one of those things where you go. I, I, when I heard, I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised. No, like, as shocked as you can be for a ninety-six year old. And you you just sort of go. I thought she was going to be around forever, right? Like it just sort of has been. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's always been a and you know, a sort of a, a an existence. I'm not a monarchist in any way. Yeah. Um, and I think this will be another sort of chink in the armor, death blow. Yeah, to to the monarchy, in my opinion. Me too. Charles is a buffoon. Charles in charge is not going to work, man. That's Although he's a, he's an environmentalist. He's a, you know, a horticulturalist. He's, he's got his eyes on the, on the prize, but he, to me, with his, with his queen consort, I just. Camilla. Yeah, I'm not. She's about to become an idol worldwide for side piece around the world. <laughs> Your side girl. Your side chick can eventually become I queen consort. I wasn't sure where you're going with that side. Really? Side boob. Wow. Like, what, do we, what, do, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, queen consort Camilla. Well, see, you had prince side piece of Wales. <laughs> yeah. Well, not no longer. <laughs> no. Because Kate is now uh, William and Kate are prince and princess of Wales. Yeah, and the kitties. Um, Louis, is George. It? Somebody in Louis. I'm like, that's a odd. Um, so really, if if they wanted to, if they wanted to have a chance to keep this thing, this train rolling, you got to bypass Chuck and you got to go right to William. So, I think the the one thing that comes to me with with Liz now passing is, is this the chance for us now to redo our currency? If you've seen, I don't know when the last time you've seen a $20 bill or <laughs> personally, like the last time you've touched cash, Matt, when is the last time you've laid your hands on actual cash it's money? a bit. At the very beginning of the pandemic, grabbed a big wad of- A it, fat stack. It, it just felt like society was crumbling, right? I couldn't get toilet paper. Okay. I'm out I had of- to liquidate <laughs> all <of> my assets. <laughs> That's probably about the last time that I went and- Seriously, by the time the pandemic started up and people were like, that, I'm fucking, I don't, don't, I don't want to go, whatever you're touching, yeah. you could tap that. I'd tap that. Well, Maybe my favorite tweet of the week, in ultimate respect to the queen, uh, saw someone post that, how'd it go? Was it, uh, when old Elizabeth passes away, uh, all the flags go to half mast, but I got to tell you. When a young Elizabeth went past, I went to half mast. <laughs> okay. Long live the queen. Yeah. How old is that guy? <laughs> yeah. Good now, on him if he can still get to half mast. Because now that's all he can do, right? <laughs> oh, look at that. It's a medium softy. We're good to go. Um, but yeah, it's, and, and uh, as we've talked about here before, I am, you know, there's been seven or eight members of my family have met her. Mm-hmm. I am not one of them. <laughs> she asked for that. Yeah. <laughs> Wonk. Don't bring that wrong. You ever, you ever seen the queen do the Heisman? <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I, I recall back to, and I'm like, I have this memory of going to see the queen when I'm in grade six. And I'm like, 
it's some place on the St. Lawrence, like Morrisburg or Prescott, which seems totally odd. Yeah. But I was going to school out there. Like I, I was out in, you know, living south of Ottawa at the time. So when she passed, I'm like, I got to search this up. And yeah, in 1984, <laughs> a royal tour that um, had her stopping in Riverview, Morrisburg, Prescott, Ottawa. Sounds like a shitty bus route. Well, for sure it does, man. <laughs> You're like, whoa, what is happening here? We're stopping at every... But yeah. I was way more interested in, uh, there was a girl I was super interested in at the time, in a grade six kind of way. Yeah. Um, maybe we were going to hold hands. Ooh. Not entirely sure. Yeah. But so way more interested in her than what was going to happen to the queen. But yeah, late September of my grade six year. Yeah, I've had a weird sort of, I, there's a part of me that, that you brought it up a little while ago that was like, this is probably an RE time for us to make a clean break from from the monarchy, right? There was sort of a thing, unless you're older than 70 years old, she's always been your queen. You grew up, that's who was holding down the crown. And it was sort of like more about her than the monarchy. Of course. And it dates back to that speech she gave in 57, I believe, where she says, yeah, the days of me leading you into battle or laying down laws or ruling over you, they're gone. I understand that those are over and I'm dedicating my life to you. And the exact quote is something along my life, whether it be long or short, shall be dedicated to your service. And it still rolls on in a very old school, horribly out of date way where there's security all over the place and the pomp and circumstance is off the charts whenever she goes anywhere. But she understands clearly and is vocalizing for everybody, the days of me ruling are done, but I can now do different. She was involved in charities, right? She would be at events. Things like that were now the new role of the monarchy. And I think people were largely willing to accept that, but it doesn't erase, you know, the, um, the history that Britain and this colonial rule that a lot of people struggled with and, and didn't struggle with in some cases to just vocalize this week going, yeah, no, fuck her, right? Or fuck them. And I kind of get that too. I don't particularly have those harsh feelings towards her, but I certainly understand why White others Matt. might. Exactly. Living in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly understand why others have no wish to honor her death and whatever. But I think a lot of that is obviously historical more yep. than it is about her is. specifically. But I do think now that she's gone and we are in this kind of 2022 world, if you were ever going to try and flip the switch and move on from holding up this kind of thing where they are above us and it's this fucking bloodline that we're all supposed to care about now would be the time, but it does involve changing the entire Canadian constitution. It needs every province and territory to agree to good luck with that shit. Yeah. And and sorry, I I wasn't looking so much at at, at getting rid of our, you know, our, our constitution. You'd have to completely change your government system. I was really, I was really just looking at, um, our currency. Really, just in terms of yeah, uh, someone now, did a great 
pinup, man, or like, uh, you know. Pinup, more back to your young Liz. Yeah, no, but it was, it was the $20 bill, but instead of Queen Elizabeth on, it was Marie-Philippe Poulain with a cigar and a beer from the 2010 Olympics. <laughs> okay. I, I'd use that. Like, well, <laughs> and the thing was, who, who do you put on, who do you put on currency? Because you know in this time, you have to go. Brian so, Adams. Okay. <laughs> Yes, Corey Hart. <laughs> nice. Sure. Um, it was, you know, I, I came Deep up. Stephen Dimes. Yeah, I, I came up with, you sort of go Terry Fox and you go yeah. Banting and or, or uh, Tommy Douglas. Sure. You start to sort of. Like no politicians. It has to be a. Right. Well, Tommy Douglas was a politician. Okay, but Banting but, and, and. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, and, and so, but you know, there's going to have to be representation. Right. Yep. There's going to have to be indigenous people on there. There's going to have to be women. They're going to have to have, so what do you got? Give me, give me four. And I'm asking you right off the top of your head <laughs> and it's okay. Swing, miss, swing, miss. <laughs> I appreciate your confidence in me. <laughs> I do like Terry Fox. Yep. But I've, white, I've given white you White male. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you were allowed two white males, Matt. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I have, I have no idea, man. I, I honestly, right. I and, and just what, throw really Charles' what, giant fucking head on there. We'll have to do uh, some Celine kind of I want Celine Dion. Kind of this has got to so be it. Folds properly. But yeah, David Suzuki. I want. There's he's white he's, guy. He's not. Well, he's he's <laughs> yeah. of Japanese descent. Come on. All right. White beard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so to me, you go. All right. The Suzuki fits a couple bills. We'll put him on there. And so, yeah. You're right. This is how it's going to have to be, right? Check boxes on. 100%, right? And you Fuck go. Fuck it, just do away with the 20. <laughs> yeah. So we go, we no longer have a one and two, so no. we're good. It's 5, 10, 20, 50, yeah. 100. How about that? Yeah. There's only, like I said. It's fine. You're good. No Anyways, one has cash anyway. Figured it. There you literally. go. Now, Matt has totally figured it out. <laughs> yeah. We're going cashless because I cannot figure out who I need to put on that. <laughs> how about Laura Secord? Can we put Laura Secord on there? Yeah. Brits coming. Agnes McPhail. Sure. All right. Read a book for Christ's sake. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the. I'm feeling rejuvenated <laughs> too, man. Just firing it right out there. Thanks. Go fuck your hat. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Spontaneous. It, you know what? I, I I actually thought we had to do it. Apparently it's not a law. You don't have to change the money. I thought it all had to be not pulled back. Like whatever is already out there circulating is fine. Okay. I was reading this week that, yeah, no, there is no law that says you have to change it. So it may be the path of least resistance since no one's going to agree on anything to just leave her on there. <laughs> Let it. Uh, yeah. Well, but it, it has, it has been cooking for a while, right? As, as Liz comes closer to the end. Yeah. There was the talk of what do we do, right? Do we need to keep Laurier? How do we freshen up this Borden and Mackenzie King? Like, are these things that still speak to Canada in the moment? Right. In the now. Throw Drake on there. Like. 100%, <laughs> man. Let's do that. Why, why would you not be, you got the Beebs. Yep. All these things. And so it's, it's just in terms of Charles III does not does not move the needle for me and I am at a freshly minted 50, an old bastard, <laughs> right? I can't imagine the, the 20 year old listening cares a whole lot about, whereas if you were to go with a younger, fresher, more dynamic look at the monarchy, perhaps. Maybe. Yeah. 
it just feels very much like, as we already pointed out, it was about her, not the monarchy. Because we were never ruled, right? Like you and I never had the crown a pushing down upon us and telling us how it was going to be. It was always a figurehead. Yep. And there was something that maybe is a little old school that's like, yeah, you know what? I would go to war for the queen. Look at Charles. And, ah, fuck you. Fight your own stupid battle. <laughs> like, there's nothing there that's inspiring. Well, there's nothing. Because what she represents is, is sort of so long and enduring. Yes. And it has that feel of. This guy's the substitute teacher. Right. Fuck Common, him. <laughs> the Commonwealth. When it meant something, and I'm sure for a lot of young people, it doesn't mean anything. No, now. it doesn't. And so, like I remember in the '80s, the Commonwealth Games, big deal. Yeah, they were a big thing. Yep. I don't even know, man. Those things come and go. I think they were in Manchester last year or in Edinburgh. I have no idea. Right. And so it's just in terms of, of what comes down the pipe, and and she was somebody who. Has been around. She was the queen and met weekly with Churchill. Yep. Like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. And, and so she's seen, you know, the, how the change in the, in the monarchy and, and how, how things have evolved. And really in the sixties and into the seventies, man, there was a hard push to abolish. Yeah. And so she understood that you have to you have to change and you have to be more than while still maintaining some of that old school whatever that is yeah everything her kids went through and with Diana and then you know Prince Harry and I can't imagine when she came into office that she envisioned that one of her grandkids would marry a black woman right like I can't imagine in the 40s or into yeah. office what 50s 50s yeah that that was on the table and that's the world we live in now. And, and she did adapt to it. Look, I got no, it's interesting to watch, man. The, the, there was an entire Irish soccer stadium chanting, Lizzie's in a box, Lizzie's in a box. Like not everybody's mourning this week, right? Like there are a lot of reasons why a lot of people feel a lot of different ways about this. And it's interesting because I don't know that any of them are all that wrong, right? Like if you feel some loyalty to it, that's cool. If you resent it in a huge yeah. way, I think that's totally well, understandable at, too. At, at one point, the English crown ruled over 25% of the globe. Yeah. The and, sun never sets on the British Empire. And there's a lot of people who don't love that. No. And so, and, and many of them have brown skin. Yep. And so, you were, you're not happy with that. And, and so... Like she oversaw the decay, if you want to call it, of the empire. Like she was a part of us bringing the constitution home from London, yep. right? Like she signed off on that willingly, probably because she knew she didn't have a friggin' choice, right? Like yeah, the, yeah. the colonies are leaving, but to embrace that and be the face of it and understand that I'm reigning over a different world. But you're still going to send money, right? <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Constitutional monarchy. Yes, we're good. Right. So, but yeah, I think all that goes out the window now when you're like, oh, it's in terms, in, in hockey terms or sporting terms, it's a rebuild. Yeah. 
they're in a rebuild right now. And yep. so now is the time where you're like, you know what? I'm, I think I'm out. I That's think- it. That's it. This is, we're going to face these questions. Is this the time to, and like it's in your constitution. It's not a flip of a switch. We're done with the monarchy. You're out. You got to get everybody in this country to agree that we want to change systems and then to what, and then I don't think anything happens, but I believe Charles will have a hell of a time being as revered as, as Lizzie was. Well, cause you've, you've now brought in your horse faced wife. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, <laughs> did I say that? You may have said that. Yeah. You've now, cause to me, they talk about how revered she's going to be and how loved by the public she is. And I, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, you look at how his first wife was truly loved yep. by the public. Yep. We're going to stir all that back up here. And so to me, I'm not sure Camilla is. And so how people in this, and, and maybe this is the, the deal where you go, yeah, all right. Well, you know what? They got divorced. So what? Sorry. Move on. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm I just, think it's what happened after the divorce that. It's going to be complicated. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing is complicated, right? In terms of the, of the, of the sort of incestuous gross relationship between the, between the press and, and the monarchy, right? It's just. I think it's, this is a natural cut point to over the last 70 years, we've already evolved kind of above believing that, you know, this is this center victorious we should all bow and curtsy and whatever. That world is no longer here, but you put up with it because it was her and, you know, she was a little old lady and it was harmless. And now you have this new guy stepping in going, eh, how about me? And you're like, nah, we're done here. And just, whether it be, gets made official or not, I think Canada's relationship, at least with the crown, is going to be very different moving forward. I just... I just think it's a different vibe now and we, we put up with it and even that is stronger than I want it to sound. Yeah. Yeah. We, we accepted it. It was part of who we were when it was her and now we were only really doing it for her and we're not doing it for well, you. We're and, and Matt, it's like if you had the, if you had the opportunity to see the last living brontosaurus. Yeah. And you go, yeah, I remember being downtown, my, my kids are three and five and the queen was here on Canada day. And 2010, 2011, or was that a different time? Cause I was also here for Canada day on, uh. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking maybe oh five, oh six, I'd, I'd have to look hmm. I, the numbers. Anyways, my son who was as a, as a youth, yep. or as a youngin was always, didn't love crowds. Right, okay. And I remember going up sort of Metcalf, you head that straight up to the, to the, to the hill. Yep. And it just, you know, you start to get into crowds and there's crowds and then there's crowds, right? And, and it's just, bam, you have people pressed up against you like you're on a Tokyo yep. subway. I think we're talking about the same one. I think it might be a year or two later than you're uh, thinking. Okay. Right? Well, that would make my, that would make, that would make Mitch like eight or nine. Well. Anyways, he was freaking out, not loving the crowds, right? Just like, got to get out of here, dad. Let's get going. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they were there to see the queen. It was. I meant to bring that up earlier too. Like I, despite the fact that ultimately right now, like I wasn't all tore up when she passed. I knew it was noteworthy. I knew it was big, but there was a part of me. I was like, glad I went and saw her. 
Like, glad I did go. Like you and I going to see Rush. Yeah. That was one of those bands you have to check off. Yeah, I saw Rush, man. And Queen I saw Elizabeth. Might have been the same year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple years later, but I do get it. Yeah. It was just like, I'm, I'm glad I did that. And she gave speech and it was kind of cool to see the, the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. And we were right up at the front. There was a musical ride. So you had to back up because the horses were just dancing and dropping as they went. And, yeah. Um, Road apples. Yeah. And um, then she came out and gave her speech because they dropped the the gates and then you could rush onto Parliament Hill and get as close to the stage as you possibly could right after all the, the ceremony shit was over. And you're like dodging, like I said, these, yeah, road apples. <laughs> like, this is great. This this feels very regal, like the yeah. queen is coming. And yeah, <laughs> when I'm pretty sure my uncle would have been in the in the coach with her at that point. Nice, okay. He, he was, uh, he had a... A consistent long-term relationship with her. He was the, uh, he had presented her two different horses oh. as, uh, he was, uh, his, he had a long run with the, with the musical ride. Right. And so, um, he was in constant contact with her, her, uh, staff horse. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the head, I was going to say there's a, it's a, a stud is in the title, but so yeah, so he was he was always involved in terms of um of of contact and so he was always around when when she was around and so it's it, it's, it's a different chapter now, man. That's And I think you're right. I think this is the thing where he, because she has that holdover effect. Yeah. Right? Like if you look at just in the last 100 years, right? The change to monarchies across Europe and thus around the world, right? And yeah. how empire was such a big thing for all of them, right? And it came down to the economic reasons for empire and all that. And how World War Two, World War One, sorry, changed that. And how the British monarchy under Queen Elizabeth, whether it be to televise her wedding, whatever. And at the end, her having an Instagram, a Twitter, and a Facebook yeah. account, right? Where she's seen all that. Yep. From, from the rise of television to today's social media and everything in between, just how versatile you have to be to continue to keep yourself fresh in front of mind and still still speaking to that 85-year-old woman in Liverpool and the 22-year-old in downtown London, right? It's just to make yourself still relevant is got to be, it was incredibly hard. And and I'm not sure that enduring British thing that we all think of is going to, is going to still hold true with Charles. No, I think this is where it uh, passes, but it was a huge story, a huge chapter. It was worth touching on. I hope we didn't, uh, hope we didn't spoil the ending of the crown for any of you still watching on Netflix. Well, and it's, uh, they, they've, they've <laughs> this pa- was always going to be the end. <laughs> they've paused, they've paused filming of it in, 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 because they still have, there was always only supposed to be six seasons hmm. and they've done four. And so what they have in the can in terms of seasons five and six, it was never going to, going to involve her death. I don't believe. Right. So yeah, I'll, I'll but now we it. might as well. Uh, <laughs> You can put a real lid on this now. Yeah, you go, there we go. Let's wrap this bad boy up. won't be waiting for the sequel. <laughs> no. You've been watching the uh, the prequel? I know you were big uh, uh, Game of Thrones. House of Dragons? You've been watching the Hot D? Well, see, uh, I... <laughs> Down I, with the Hot D. I, I do not... Um, I don't like... I don't want to wait week to week. 
Yeah. Okay. So you're letting it get ahead of you. I, and... I, I will wait and then I will, I will take down, right. but I have had a summer full of last season of Peaky Blinders. Right. Took that down at the Stranger Things. So uh, yeah, in terms of, of finishing off of different things. Well, I always said the, the Game of Thrones, I'm just not feeling it because of the dragons. You've always tried to say, it's not about the dragons. There's a real fucking story. <laughs> now this one, House of the Dragon, I, there's no, <laughs> it's, it's going to be about the dragons. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I get that. And I, and I have said the whole way through, right? The, yes. the thing that I. It's just a backdrop. It's, that I didn't like the most was the dragon thing. Yeah. Right. And, and it was sort of this sort of side story. It wasn't the main story, but it became right. It was, it was a constant thread and obviously it built through the, through the, through the show. Yeah. But no, I have yet to watch it. I will take that bad boy down, (laughs) but I'll wait till probably the season one is done. I wanted to tell you a tale because I know you're, uh. I want to tell you a story. A lapsed UFC guy. Oh, I'm a lapsed a pile of things, but, okay. but yes, I am a, I am a lapsed UFC guy. It's true. You would not believe what has gone on this week in the lead up to UFC 279. And just to set the table for people. The guy from San Luis Obispo was coming back? Uh, yes. That guy? Yes. Uh, this card has been doomed since the beginning. And I should tell everybody that uh, this was supposed to be a guy named Nate Diaz. Oh, I love the Diaz brothers. Final fight. Hate the Diaz brothers. In the UFC. Yeah, that's about how it goes. You love and hate uh, these yep, guys. for sure I do. So they have kept Nate basically on ice for a year. Because the way UFC contracts are set up, they do have an end date. And for him, it's uh, early October. Or your final fight. And there's, whether they signed you to a five fight deal, a three fight deal, whatever it might be. So they, he's wanted to fight for a bit now. Cause once he got that last fight out of the way, he can go do whatever he wants. Everyone knows he's leaving the UFC. He's probably going to go box Jake Paul. Like that's the sort of thing that he's got coming up. And the UFC is like, no, you are a huge name. We are not going to help you get out of here early. They have fucked him at every turn. And I don't like the Diaz brothers, but they have treated this guy who is a legend in the UFC, like absolute shit. So knowing that he's going to leave even without having to do that final fight in October, because like I said, it's either the number of fights or the contractual end date. They go, all right, we'll give you a fight at the, uh, the middle of September here, since you're going to walk anyway. They give him Hamzat Chimeev. Nice. He is a murderer. He's 5-0 and in the UFC. He's destroyed everybody. This is Dana White and the UFC, again, saying to Diaz, we know you're leaving. We know you're 37. We're hoping to smash you on the way out. Again, so that you'll be weaker. You'll be worth less when you go do these other things in competition with us. It is incredibly spiteful. And uh, essentially, Chemaev, who's just a kid on the rise, right? He's... But he's been hired basically to be the hitman here, the mercenary who finishes Nate Diaz. So we arrive at uh, at the UFC 279 pre-fight press conference on the Friday night. And all of a sudden, Dana White comes out and says, yeah, there's not going to be a press conference. Behind the curtains, behind the scenes, Hamzat Chimeev has gotten into a fight with Kevin Holland. 
Kevin Holland is another guy. He's supposed to fight on the card against uh, Daniel Rodriguez. And Shemaev is been arguing with him, yelling at him, delivers like a front kick to him backstage. Um, Diaz shows up as both the Diaz brothers always with like 35 guys yeah, in his course. entourage. Yeah, There's an army. Yeah. He sees what this is and security is now surrounding. He hasn't seen how this started, but he now sees security surrounding these guys. And he freaks out saying that the UFC is trying to protect Chimeyev from him. You're like, no, there was just a shit show here. And you, so now those guys try and start fighting the Chimeyev group and security. It is a fucking gong show. Yeah. So Saturday, uh, no, that was Thursday. Friday, supposed to be the weigh-ins. And guys start showing up and a couple of people in some non-title fights um, start missing weight. Like things are already not going very well. And then rumors start to sh- uh, circulate around that Hamzat Shemaev is now not going to show up to the weigh-in. Even though he's the guy who's started this thing. He's the golden child. He's the hired mercenary. He's all these. He finally does show up and misses weight by seven and a half pounds. Almost a weight class. <laughs> this guy is. For you people who don't follow MMA necessarily, lots of guys have missed by like half a pound, a pound. Like I tried my best a to get down. A pound is a big miss. Yeah. This guy misses by seven and a half. He is, as I said, the hired mercenary. He This is the first time he's been given the chance to be the main event at a pay-per-view. Um the UFC was counting on this guy and he blew it. And when he finally does show up to miss his weight and like do the weigh in, he couldn't care less. He's smiling. He flips off the cameras when they weigh him in at seven and a half over, uh, where he's supposed to fight at 170. He goes, ah, it's not that bad. And turns and walks away. Like he's just a total douche about the entire thing. And you can cut that. You could cut that five and a half or seven and a half pounds if you wanted to. In an hour? No, that's not, all you have now. Not in an hour. I'm, yeah. I'm saying leading up to that. So he says this is a medical issue. Ah, you don't look overly tore up about it though, right? Like this is an excuse. This is what. So Dana White now has to go backstage and say to Nate Diaz, who he has been openly trying to fuck for over a year, hey, you want to help us out here? Who else might you want to fight? You, and Dana. Dana, yeah, exactly. Diaz now holds all the cards. He has them by the short and curlies. They have 20,000 seats sold. Does he want to fight Conor McGregor? They have, oh, fuck. This is the worst possible outcome for the UFC. This They could not have possibly foreseen this coming, right? Like, and Diaz has all the power. What does he want now? Does he R- want to fight Rory someone? McDonald? Does he want to fight someone on the, Rory? Do you see that just announced his retirement this month? No, I did he not. He was supposed to be the next uh, the, the would, GSP. Yeah, he was. And and I successor. asked that because he he dumped Diaz on his head probably <laughs> four times in a fight. <laughs> so this it should also be noted. Lots of people thought uh, in terms of trying to fuck over Nate Diaz. The undercard was awful leading into this, and they had to beef it up because no one was buying tickets. Because the way it works, if you have a fight contract, Nate Diaz gets points. 
for how many pay-per-views get sold, right? So the better a card does, the more successful it is, the more people who buy it, the more the main eventers get paid. And so this sort of was viewed as not only are they signing up Nate Diaz to be the next guy who just gets mauled by Hamzat Shemaev, they're going to put nothing underneath and hope that he gets to make, like they're sabotaging their own card. Minimal points on it. Yeah, nobody buys it yeah. and then uh, he doesn't make any money on the way out either. We come to the end of August, nobody's bought tickets, this is going to be a disaster. So they go, okay, we're going to add a couple of decent fights. So they add uh, Kevin Holland versus... Uh, Daniel Rodriguez, not a couple of really well-known names, but yeah, yeah. very exciting fighters. Yeah. So they also add Tony Ferguson to take on uh, Lung, uh, Lee Jung Leung. And that's an interesting fight at welterweight as well, but it's not a huge ticket move. But, but Tony Ferguson has a name, he has a reputation, but he's only like four weeks removed from having Michael Chandler kick his head off. Well, and he's he's been... For a guy who was a durable, exciting fighter. He's lost four in a row now. Exactly. Yep. He's on a wicked skid. So all of a sudden, he, like I said, Dana has to go to Diaz, who's the biggest name left, who has made weight successfully at welterweight. And he has said long, long ago, someone brought up a tweet from 2016 um, that Diaz posted that says... Uh, if you don't show up for war, you lose the war in response to someone else not making weight. So he's done his thing. He showed up. He's made weight despite the fact that the UFC's fucked him at every turn. And it's his opponent who hasn't. So he says to Dana, I'm not fighting anybody who hasn't made weight. So Dana's now got to call all five of these other guys that are involved in the top three fights on this pay-per-view and try and shuffle the deck. And there is some strategy here now. The UFC used to just throw on big fights, whoever the names were or whatever. They do now, and it's pretty smart for exactly situations like this, try and keep them in similar weight classes yeah. so that if you have to shuffle the deck, there are other guys around maybe who uh, who can do it. So Nate Diaz says, I'm not fighting anyone who hasn't made weight. So they go and they talk about, what about Ferguson? And Ferguson says, yeah, but it's going to cost you because I've prepared for... Correct however many months to fight Liang Ji Li, Li Ji Young Lung, Lung Ji Liang. <laughs> yep, that guy. Liang <laughs> Zhang Li. And uh, yeah, that's what I was prepared to do. So this is going to cost you a little bit. And Diaz is, of course, saying the same thing. We don't know yet what Diaz wants. Diaz might have said, instead of cash and, you know, me leaving, maybe I want a two or three fight deal here. Right? Like maybe I want to stick around. Dana, if you want yeah. to have your show on Saturday night, maybe I want to extend my contract. I, and I'm tightening up the contract. I'm, and, not, I'm not going with X number of years. No, and, and at similar money to what I was going to make off fighting Jake Paul. And people might laugh, and I'm one of them, but people get paid on those Jake Paul 100%, pay-per-views. 100%, So yeah. he holds all the cards. We don't yet know what he demanded. Quit I'm making sure. stupid people famous. <laughs> he post-fight. Uh, press conference that Dana has on late Saturday night will be fascinating. So they set that up. They get Tony Ferguson versus Nate Diaz. That's your new five round main event. Tony Ferguson had also only prepared for a three fight or three round fight. So that's going to cost you again too. Am I prepared to go in there for five rounds? So now you go to Hamzat. He's supposed to be the golden boy. He was on the fast track to fight Kamaru Usman who lost a month ago. 
this whole thing has fallen apart, right? That was going to be a welterweight. Kevin Holland's fight with Daniel Rodriguez, that was going to be a catchweight at 180. So they say to Kevin Holland, will you fight Chimaev? Because Kevin Holland is the guy who was fighting with Chimaev yeah. backstage yeah. on Thursday night. Perfect. We could market this. We'll release the tape that we have of it to so- try and sell this thing at the yeah. last minute. And he goes, yeah, but I, it has to stay at five rounds and you're going to pay me too to, uh, to fight this killer, right? Dana, meet Barrel. Yeah, exactly. Dana is fucked here. And Chmeyev is still now at 178 instead of 170. He's still a killer, and he's probably more so because he hasn't cut all the way down. And he's So Kevin Holland knows this is not ideal for him. And worst of all, uh, so that gets signed. That's going to happen as well. Five rounds, Chmeyev versus Kevin Holland. And guy who gets fucked the worst is Leung Zhang Li, who made weight successfully at 170. And they say... Will you fight Daniel Rodriguez, who made weight successfully at 180? So he is fighting the lowest, uh, the the guy who's weighed in 10 pounds heavier than him and has the lowest profile, right? The smallest name. There's no real value, even if I do beat this guy. So Lee, again, is going to be like, what are you going to pay me, Dane? This has been a complete debacle. You have reshuffled the entire deck. All three of your top fights that you already had to top up going into this. And it's all because of this guy that you put all your faith in. The guy who was up and coming. I loved. I may still. I, I'm not sure how much I care yet. This Chimeyev kid. But you put faith in him for the first time to be your pay-per-view headliner. And he has caused you to have to pay five other guys probably double what they came in expecting to well, get paid. And what is your medical reason for not making weight but still being if able to fight? If you can still fight. How does that happen? Yeah. And that's the question, right? And so to me, and, and I've said it before, the Diaz brothers, like to me, Diaz, Nate's just rolled off the couch from smoking a big bomb. Yeah. And that's all he's doing. And he just fights. Yeah. Like that's, he's a throwback mixed martial artist. He's a guy who... If he wasn't doing anything, he'd be out with Kimbo Slice. Right. Doing whatever, right? Fighting guys in a back Kimbo. alley. Yeah, that's a good throwback. Awesome, yeah. Eh? yeah. <laughs> um, so he's a fighter. So whatever his deal is, he's just going to roll in there and he's going to fight. Oh, but he's, he's gonna... a smart motherfucker. He was making Dana pay him. Like he... And this is what I'm saying is, is Dana, for all this time, has held athletes over the barrel yep. and suppressed money and, and salaries. All of these guys have him. Yeah. And so to <laughs> me, especially if you are a, a Ferguson or a Diaz later in your career, guys going yep. fucking show me the money, yep. bitch. Yeah. And I don't, I don't blame them a bit. No. Like to me, this is exactly what I would do in their shoes. And you could make the case. This is a better card now. Like, this is a more, well, com- more intrigue. Yeah. Well, for sure. They will make money. Up, and, and they had a guy on, uh, on Ariel Helwani's, uh, the ringer MMA show, um, late on uh, Friday night who used to work in the PR department for the UFC. And he said, look, no one ever draws this up. No one could have predicted anything like this, but if you start marketing something three months out and the guy sees the commercial about three weeks from fight time, he's got to remember to go buy the show and whatever. When this is all over sports center on Friday and Saturday, yeah. He's buying that show. He will watch. Holy fuck. What happened? Right? Like he goes, I had no idea. Right. This is a disaster. 
but this is PR you can't create for yourself. And so it's going to be fascinating as we sit here now. The fights haven't uh, haven't gone down yet, but you've never seen anything like this. And the really fascinating story will be what happens to Chimeyev now. Because Dana does hold a grudge. Oh, for sure he does. And A, will they ever let him try and fight at welterweight again? Because he has struggled before to get down to 170. Or do they just say to him, yeah, you're a fucking middleweight. Because the way you were mauling welterweights anyway. And has that train to a title fight been totally derailed? Like, they're going to make him go back now. And, you know, even if he does smash uh, Sullivan. Or Sullivan. um, Holland. Holland. Thank you. You know, they go, yeah, we don't care. Like you fucked us here. You're not getting a title fight out of this. And how, cause how would you build another pay-per-view on him in the main event? Like, how do you depend on him? He's got a lot of work to do now to rehabilitate his, his, his image and, and his, and the trust. Yeah. Right. Both from the organization and the fans. Like people love this guy online man. and Twitter has been like, oh, fuck you. Cause the way he's smiling and flipping off the cameras, you don't care that you just blew this up. Right. Like, yeah, it's a mess, man, but it's. I, I was talking to a couple of people like this is a far more interesting card now than it was 48 hours ago. 100%. Now, is it going to be a top notch? Probably not. It never was. Right? It may have that sort of back alley fight kind of feel to it. Yeah. But any any fight with Diaz is yep. is, is that. Guy's going to bleed. He's got so much scar tissue on his face. <laughs> Honestly. Right? He's just going to, but he's going to get in there and you probably won't knock him out. No. Well, no. But the last time, and that's it. Like he and Tony, like... If if Diaz was going to fight Chimeyev, Chimeyev was going to wrestle him to the ground and maul him. That's yep. the way that fight was going to go. He and Ferguson, they're just going to stand and bang, man. Like, they will throw bombs at each other and, and it's we'll re- see what happens. And it's really two guys who probably, Ferguson especially, probably with the damage he's taken yeah. in the last couple of fights. Yeah. And knock on down, knock on out. You should just, somebody should save him. And, and again, the San Luis Obispo. <laughs> Chuck Liddell. Right. That's who that is. And that to me is Ferguson starting to verge on that, right? Like Cowboy Cerrone. Yeah. No, all, you're right about that. All these guys who get to the end and you go, yeah, you're a name and you're a stud and you've done all these things, but you're hurting yourself. Yeah. And you're not winning fights. But this has been quite a week, man. The uh, From the backstage fight. Guy, like there was another guy... Um, uh, Garnett, I forget his, Chris Garnett, perhaps missed weight at heavyweight. Oh, 265 missed the upper limit. Couldn't get down to 265 and people, some of the other UFC fighters who weren't there, uh, obviously were, uh, chiming in on Twitter going, make fucking Chimea fight that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you missed weight. He missed weight. Off you go. hundred pounds between the two of you. And you go, yeah, all right. That solves all my problems. <laughs> right, so. You're not a contender at a heavyweight anyway. So we'll put you in there against that guy. So. Yeah. I, I'm far more intrigued by the card. Luckily, uh. Our boy Bunda always comes through with, boy the, Bunda. with the uh, links of questionable legality. And, uh, Matt's we'll got his burner laptop yeah, that he's going to... The, the get, one that gets sent into all the darcest corners yeah, of the can, internet. Yeah, can throw off the off the deck here at, at, at <laughs> notice. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, man. But this was uh, this was quite a week. I don't think I've ever seen um, Ariel Helwani, like I said, that Ringer MMA uh, show that they do on uh, weigh-in days is normally about 90 minutes long. This was four and a half minutes long, or four and a half hours long because... They're wow. just waiting Pile on of shit to cover. Yeah, waiting on what are you going to do? Who's going to fight who? 
Dustin Poirier sitting at home taking selfies on the scale going, I'm at 176 now. I weigh less than the fucker who was training for the fight. (laughs) He's the Phil Kessel. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just sitting here with my dog tonight. Yeah. Anybody? uh, Yeah. No, that's, uh, I forgot about that. (laughs) During the World Cup. During the World Cup, exactly. Fucking amazing. Uh, That's all I got, man. I had to tell the tale. Uh, you know what? It's, 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 it's a tale worth telling. All right. Hello, friends. Future Matt just dropping back in here. It is late Saturday night. The fights are over, obviously. Rob is, uh, is long gone. You figure if you're going to tell the story of what happened leading into this card, you got to at least uh, let the world know how it ended. Uh, so long in the background now. Uh, the first of the three fights that all got shuffled there, uh, the name that I've been struggling with... Uh, <laughs> through the whole show. Li Jing Leung takes on Daniel Rodriguez. And as I mentioned, Leung's probably the guy who took the biggest chance here in allowing all of these things to reshuffle. And um, he had the least to gain from it. And that turned out to be true. As uh, he weighed in successfully at 170, his opponent weighs in successfully at 180. And his opponent is, of course, also, you know, kind of the least big name out of everybody that was in this shuffle out of all these six fighters. So he agrees to do it. No doubt he would have got paid. No doubt they would have taken care of him. But, uh, you know, this was always going to be the uh, the toughest draw for him. He probably did the biggest favor to the UFC in all of this. And honestly, just an okay fight. It was a bit of a stalemate, right? And one of the things you look at as, uh, as Daniel Rodriguez does win it and... Um, Probably in in somewhat controversial fashion, the second round was close. Uh, The first round was for one guy, the third round was for the other. Uh, Obviously, Rodriguez won the first round and and Leach won the second, uh, won the third, excuse me. The second one was up for grabs, and so it was a split decision. The judges decided that. And you know what? I don't really have a big argument with it. What I did hate was people booed through almost the entire fight. And I don't know what the fuck your problem is. I've never seen a sport where so many people show up, pay hundreds of dollars to boo something they clearly don't understand. You've got a guy who is the lead striker. He's normally the guy who would try to punch first in Li Jing Liang, facing someone who's weighed in like 10 pounds heavier than him, who's just waiting to counter strike. So no, he didn't rush ahead. And when Rodriguez is a counter striker waiting for someone else to make the first move, and that first move doesn't come. Yeah, you get a bit of a stalemate. So it wasn't a great fight, but I sort of understood why. They were very evenly matched, but the size difference made it dangerous for uh, for Leech, uh, Li Jing Liang, to do much. And so if you showed up to that fight and started booing, I got a feeling you just don't know what the fuck you're watching. Because these are the guys, especially Liang, who took the biggest chance on 24 hours notice to go out and fight somebody so that you'd have a show to watch. They offered refunds. You were free to take your money and leave. You didn't. You showed up and you booed like a moron. And and that stuff bugs me a little bit. Uh, especially, like I said, for Leung, who was the guy out of all six fighters who took the biggest chance uh, and f- to see that fight get booed um, was ridiculous. Uh, what wasn't ridiculous and the booing that was acceptable was in the co-main event, Hamzat Chimeev, obviously going to take on Kevin Holland, um... Chimeyev, as I mentioned there a little while ago earlier in the show, he's the one who caused the entire problem. He shows up seven and a half pounds overweight, not even close to making it, and causes 
this whole thing to be thrown into chaos. And so he agrees to take on Kevin Holland. Uh, Kevin Holland had already weighed in at 180, so it's not a big deal if uh, if Tremaine's at 178, they can make that fight happen. And when Kevin Holland came out, it was sort of a lukewarm reaction. They cheered him, but it wasn't a huge thing. As soon as Holland's music ended and he's in the octagon and that it goes silent before Chimeyev's music plays and he starts his walkout, the crowd already is starting to boo. And I kind of get that. It still blew me away a bit because Chimeyev is has been so popular. He was the darling of the sport 48 hours ago. He is an absolute monster. He comes in, he destroys people, he was undefeated. And the fact that he fucked up this bad through the entire card, up in the air, changed the Nate Diaz fight, everything, uh, changed a couple guys' fights, they clearly hated it. And I didn't have a real issue with the fact that they booed him through his entire walkout while his music playing, they booed him. They booed him through the entire introduction, um, you know, when they're doing the uh, in, in-ring in f- uh, intros uh, in the octagon there. I get it. I don't know how much I agree, and we'll get to it here in a second, um, but I don't have anywhere near as much of a problem because this is the guy who fucked everything up. If you want to boo him, go nuts. And as soon as the fight starts, they're giving the USA chance to Kevin Holland. Whatever. That's an America thing. You guys love that chant for some reason. Good on you, I guess. Uh, rarely is it used correctly. At least this time, it sort of was. But... As soon as the fight starts, Chimeyev charges at him, takes him down. It's a wrestling style fight and he just doesn't get off of him. And by the time we're not even through the first round, he has wrestled Holland into submission. He has choked him out and Chimeyev wins. The villain prevails and the crowd did not love it. Uh, the interview after the fight that they always do that, uh, that Chimeyev gave did not help with that in any case. Uh, in any way whatsoever, but he leaned into it. He was fine with being the bad guy and did not care at all. He's screaming at the crowd, partly with the mic, partly without going, yeah, what now, what now? And uh, he did not care that they were booing him. Um, he said he's a killer. He said he'd kill anyone who got in the octagon with him. Uh, when Joe Rogan does finally interview him, uh, he says that uh, the doctor forced him to stop cutting weight uh, because he was getting too dehydrated. He says he could have made it. Joe Rogan keeps asking him, you know, what did you think? What did you think? And he goes, I don't care. I don't care about any of that. And Joe Rogan's trying to force him. Hey, you have to care. You just fucked up an entire pay-per-view, 20,000 people here in the building, bought tickets to see a certain fight. And you go, I don't care. So Joe Rogan eventually gets around asking him, you know, okay, so next time you want to fight at 170? You didn't make it this time. Can you get down to 170 or do you want to fight at 185 pounds? He goes, I want to fight both. I'll take both titles. He goes, I just crushed this guy, Kevin Holland, which he did. He goes, now I want the next two, meaning Nate Diaz and, uh, and Tony Ferguson, who are about to come out and fight in the main event. He's like, give me them right now. Like, he did not care. We talked about what it looked like at the weigh-ins, where he stepped up on the, the scales, missed by seven and a half, eight pounds, and goes, that's ah, not that bad. And he flips off the cameras, and he's smiling and grinning. It's not bugging him at all that this has ruined everything. It was the exact same vibe in the uh, in the post-fight interview. He did not care. So we'll see whether Dana cares. The post-fight press conference is always interesting. When I finish this up, I'll, I'll go check that out if there's anything noteworthy from it. You know, I'll mention it on a future podcast. But um, yeah, he comes out to all booze. 
They boo him the entire time, and he just goes out and smashes Kevin Holland like it was nothing. Took him down, maybe the fastest takedown you've ever seen to start a fight, and just did not get off him. He is a wrestling monster. Holland had nothing there. And that's the only way you can take somebody down. Like, he charged him, he sprinted at him, and just bowled him right over. And the only time you ever see that is if you don't respect your opponent. Like, this guy can't hurt me. If I get him down, if I rush him, if I whatever, I'm not afraid of his jab. I'm not afraid of what he might do to me under the ground. I'm not afraid of this guy at all. And that's clearly how Chimeyev looked at Holland, and he turned out to be right. He rushed him, took him down, held him there until, you know, we were getting late into the first round, and he finally got the choke, and that was it. Holland had to tap. It was a complete no contest. Love him or hate him, and most people hate him right now, Chimeyev is a monster. And he's not going away. I don't know whether Dane is going to punish him. I don't know what weight class he might put him in next. Um, how long he might have to wait for a title fight. He was clearly going to be next in line. We'll see if what happened this weekend changes that. I believe it will. Uh, I was going back and forth with our buddies there, uh, Creech and Bunda. Uh, we have a group chat that goes on during most of these pay-per-views. And, and they disagree. They think he might stay right on the fast track. So um, we'll see what happens there. The main event. Nate Diaz in his final fight, he's the guy that we mentioned here a few minutes ago was getting screwed over all over the place. He wins. He's leaving on his own terms. Uh, he would have held a gun to Dana White's head, the, uh, the guy who makes all the matches, the president of the UFC, and said, yeah, you know what? I'm only fighting Tony Ferguson. I'm only doing it at this weight because I did my job. I agreed to show up and fight your hired savage who couldn't even come close to making weight. And now, fuck you. You're going to pay me, and we're going to do it on my terms. And they did. And it was an interesting fight, because Tony Ferguson, the guy he ends up fighting when they reshuffle the deck, is a very similar fighter. Kind of a veteran, knows what he's doing, willing to stand in there and bang. And they did trade a bunch of shots. It was a reasonably close fight all the way through. Uh, But by the time we get to the fourth round... Uh, Tony Ferguson shoots for a takedown. Diaz kind of stuffs it and takes him into a guillotine and finishes him there. And uh, I've talked about it on the show before. I don't love Nate Diaz. I will give him credit. That final press conference where he's often an angry guy and he doesn't hide his feelings at all. He was reasonably, for Nate Diaz, humble in the post-fight press conference. He says... It's been a love-hate relationship the entire time I've been with the UFC, uh, but I do love the UFC. He shouts out Lorenzo Fertitta. He shouts out Dana White. Uh, He says he's going to go conquer another sport, and then he's going to come back and win a UFC title. The other sport is going to be boxing. He's clearly next in line for Jake Paul uh, and that whole YouTube gong show. Uh, We've covered that before. I hate it. It's fucking stupid, but guys make money, so off he's going to go. Uh, if Jake Paul can beat Anderson Silva and Anderson Silva's 47 years old, but I still think he's probably going to beat, uh, Jake Paul, but if not, Nate Diaz will be the next guy in line for Jake Paul. He'll make his money on pay-per-view. And then he says he's coming back to the UFC to win a title. I don't think he's still in title contention. I don't know whether the UFC will want him back or not. Uh, but he is going to go, he says, and do something else, conquer another sport that other fighters haven't been able to do. Those are his words, um, which clearly is alluding to the whole boxing thing where Jake Paul uh, invites former UFC fighters who have had like fucking hip replacements or have been toast for five years 
uh, guys in their late 40s or whatever. Come on, oh, uh, I'm going to prove that I'm better than UFC fighters. Yeah, but you haven't fought any of them. You fought retired guys or guys who are all beat up. I guess that's what Nate Diaz wants to go do next. And I think the MMA world will be cheering for him to shut this kid up. Um, we'll see. I won't be watching. I never do these. They're a clown show. They make uh, legitimate fighting look uh, look savage or look ridiculous, and I got no time for it. But uh, if you can go some, make some money, who am I to begrudge you? So uh, whether he's allowed to come back into the UFC after that, uh, who knows? We'll see. So that wraps it up. Uh, Daniel Rodriguez beats um, Lee Jing Leung in a uh, split decision. It went to the cards, like I said, uh, in a fight that was evenly matched. Neither go- And the crowd booed the entire time, like I said, like total assholes. Unless you're expecting one guy to just go, all right, fuck it, and drop his hand so he can get knocked the fuck out for your entertainment, you're an idiot. I don't know what you thought you were watching there other than two evenly matched martial artists. Figure it out. Uh, Hamza Chimeyev smashes Kevin Holland in the first round, um, which, you know, he's the bad guy of the weekend, but uh, sometimes the heel winning uh, tells the better story. And then, of course, Nate Diaz who had had it stuck to him for over a year. He was the one who was supposed to have to fight Shemaev. Um, He is the victor, both against Dana White in the UFC and against Tony Ferguson in the main event. It was a hell of a show, uh, different than what anybody was predicting. This was obviously not what uh, 48 hours ago we thought we were going to see, but it turned out to be more compelling. I think the matchups were better, and uh, I don't think we got a particularly intelligent crowd in this one, but, uh, the fights themselves, uh, were really fun. That's it. That's uh, future Matt checking in after UFC 279 back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Anything else for this one? Ah, let's see. Nope. All right. Uh, so look for Dave Bedini on Tuesday. I want to thank the Rio statics. We're all richer for having seen them tonight. Love that. Wednesday, Slava Malamud. Thursday, Shrides. Bob will be back next Monday. You got it. We're out. Peace. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun. But now the time has come to go. If this silkong was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time. Yeah! <laughs> Ugh.